Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Slaughterhouse Five. In the year 1922, Kurt Vonnegut was born. Hey, it's 2022. I think. Oh, did I just say? Uh, did I say 19 or 28? I think you said 1922. Okay. Good. I think you got the you got the year right. Don't don't second guess yourself five seconds into the podcast. <laughs> um howdy folks. This is Matt here. This is Luke. This is a sci-fi sanctuary. It's one where we are celebrating dancing in circles for the one hundredth birthday of the now departed Kurt Vonnegut and his iconic book, film, whatever it is, Slaughterhouse Five. Mmm. Oh, I, I see. I've already forgotten how to say it in German, except for the poof part. Hoff, Schlausen, not Schlausen. I don't remember. Schlachten, Schlachten, Hoffumpf. There we go. I got the yeah. Hoff and the Fum fine, but I forgot the slaughter. Forgot to slaughter today. Okay. <laughs> Everyone forgets the slaughter. That's kind of the point of the book. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I first became aware of this book when listening to the podcast Donut Plains. Um, and this book was introduced to me, not in my school or by anything sensible, but <laughs> as a sort of side comment by uh, our guest today, Gar- Gary Dutton. Hello, how are you? Sorry about that, Luke. Sorry you had to find out that way, but, you know, uh, good way is anyway. It was literally a week after I'd visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <laughs> So right. altogether, it was quite an experience um, and <laughs> rewrote my entire understanding of World War II. <laughs> Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and then an episode of Donut Plains. That's how it, that's how it goes. Yep. <laughs> no, I did have the uh, high school run-in with this one, which I think is pretty common for Americans. Um, you know, it's like, here's a list of five books, and obviously the one called Slaughterhouse-Five is going to catch your attention, so you're going to read that for your <laughs> book report. And then I read all of Vonnegut's books, and oh, I, and then I at my university, I, I Vonnegut is one of the guys I had to shepherd around when I worked for the university union, so I had a couple actual chats with the dude, but it, he was like the first kind of prominent person I met, so I was like way too like not knowing how to deal with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's incredible. So you, you got to speak to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After he did his little speech, and then I had to take him back to the hotel or whatever. So, you know, perfectly <sighs> fine, fine dude. <laughs> definitely. But, but I, I was definitely in like, you know, like all mode at the time because it was the first time I had done that. So, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine I would be exactly the same. And I'm not usually like about that, but he's one of those guys who just like, yeah, yeah, as we'll get on to, obviously. Um, um, although I've seen a lot of people have shared online, like, 
he was very good at replying to letters and getting in touch with people and stuff. I think mm. he would actually have hated to have been considered in awe. <laughs> well, yeah, like, yeah, definitely. I was 19 years old or whatever. I was a dumb kid, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I found it. Uh, I don't know when, but it was just in my 20s. And, and rereading it for this, it, I, it must have been 10 years since I've read it. And I definitely loved it at the time. And it's one of those things. But I thought, I wonder if it's one of those things where you go back to it and you're like, your tastes have totally changed. And you're like, oh, this is a bit cringe now. Or it's a bit simple or whatever. Because I've just I've just not touched anything of his for that long. And, I, and going back over it, I was like, oh, no, no, this is just unbelievable. Every yeah. single page, you know, it's got something quotable on it. It's spectacular. So he has not disappointed me, <laughs> you know, a decade plus later. No, I way jumped the gun this spring because we first were, oh, it's you know, 2022, 1922. We have to do this this year. So I, I read it back in like March. And then I read like Science of Titan, Cat's Cradle, Mother Night, and um, Breakfast of Champions, like all this year, but but yeah. like six months ago. <laughs> oh. <laughs> still good. Still good research. Good research. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. I couldn't just, couldn't just eat. I couldn't just read just one, right? I had to read all five of his 60s novels. <laughs> <laughs> this is currently still the only book of his I've read. Okay, I would refer you to Cat's Cradle for number two, or Mother Night if you're just into the war thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was this disappointed and, um... when I looked up the guy and discovered that he's just a fictional character uh, made up for this and Mother Night. Oh, Campbell? Yeah. Now, we do have to start talking about movies, and I, I, the Mother Night movie is pretty good. I think it's is it Nick Nolte, maybe, playing um, Campbell and... It's good because there's a Breakfast of Champions movie with Bruce Willis. That's a train wreck, even though the, the movies, I mean, oh, the book's God. good. And then Ooh. we have we have this movie, which is kind of an oddity, I guess. It's kind of like the, um, I feel like it's the, um, you know, special visual uh, model to go with the book or something. It doesn't really seem to be its own thing. Mm. It's it's the most 70s ass thing I've ever seen in my life. It's <laughs> good God. It's like I, oh, I, I saw towards the end, I sort of warmed to it, but a lot of the shots where they sort of establish in location go on for I would say 40 seconds too long. Where they're just like, we're in the train yard. Like, oh yeah, so here's the train yard. Still the train yard. <laughs> yeah, you're still in the train yard. It's like 20 seconds ago. And now it's another, another cut, another angle of the train yard, and nothing's different. You're like, okay, okay, we get it. We're in the train yard, guys. We, we got that. A lot of classical music as well, which I presume is a budget. Yeah, that's <laughs> usually the case. Thing. <laughs> and way too loud in the mix. Just really loud classical music over everything for ages. <laughs> so I, it's one of my takeaways from it. It's Matt, kind of funny. We're you're talking making about... me watch sci-fi movies from the past century has desensitized me to all of this. <laughs> <laughs> we have watched so much boring 70s shit that I don't even notice anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, it feels 70s. But um, the weird thing about this and, and being a sci-fi sanctuary is the movie kind of unsci-fis it because in the book it's very clear that billy pilgrim walks through a door and he's in a different time and place whereas this it almost feels like you know like tarantino style you know non-linear cross-cutting right it, you don't yeah it, get it's, the... it's a bit sorry cool <laughs> oh no i just saying you don't get that like kind of like through line that you get with the book but which i well, don't know if you could in a movie i think the problem is it kind of clashes i don't i mean listen i don't know how you do it differently I think the problem is when you put it into a movie, it just looks like a 
a technique. Mm. So you kind of lose the idea that he's sort of drifting between places. It looks more, as you say, it looks more like you're cutting between timelines and it's, it's not as clear because that could just, that's a technique you see in films all the time, especially looking at it with modern eyes as well. Mm. You know, that's to, jumping between things is, is something you see quite a lot. So you don't sort of go, oh, he's going through time. You know, like if you, <laughs> like if you watch Pulp Fiction, like you say, you're not going, oh, they're traveling backwards and forwards through time. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not that, you know, it's just the film's in a different order, right? So it doesn't, doesn't come across as, as particularly at all. They put in one or two moments, which I don't think were in the book, um, where yeah. like he'll say something in the past that he learned in the future and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, like, so I think if they we're were gonna... trying to reinforce the time travel thing by doing that. Yes. There's things that I, I mean, are we going to get onto the problems we have in it with it now? <laughs> Is that yeah, too early? I mean, to start? I, I'm, I'm quite happy to get the film out of the way and just talk about the book. So go right ahead. <laughs> so, one thing that um, one thing that grated on me pretty badly was um, when he's uh, when they're on the plane, the optometrist's convention, when they're flying there on the plane, mm. he has that. Also, something that's really, really made me laugh for the first for the first hour of this film is if you <laughs> haven't, it it really presumes you've read it. Right. If you're coming to this without reading it, it is the most batshit mental thing you'll ever see. If you because there's loads of references, and if you don't know them. You have no idea what's going on. Things happen. There's a bit where <laughs> there's a bit where I think it's supposed to be in the, in the book. <clears throat> Billy's being marched um, through Dresden, I think, when they arrive there. Mm. I think that's right. And um, and an old German sees his coat, and it looks ridiculous. So he thinks he's come here to take the piss, like he's being mm. he's being a clown about the whole war. So he's he's furious, and he comes up and slaps him and goes, "Do you think this is a funny? Do you think this is funny? Do you think this is a joke? You know?" And and in the film, it's at the end of this, like I don't know, ninety second again, way too long sequence of them walking through to really really badly mixed, really loud classical music and some children start sort of dancing around him and he looks at them and it keeps cutting to an old German man looks annoyed and you think what, what <laughs> why and um and then the music gets interrupted because the guy walks up to him and just gives him a big slap and, it, and the music stops abruptly and he just shouts something in German and that's the end of that bit and if you've not read the book you're just like what the f- what the fuck is going on what's this and there's so many moments like that in the first hour that are just so weird without context they try and they try and um they try and do the bit with the uh with the homeless guy in the in the trains that's traveling with them in the in the uh, Mm. prisoner train i mean um and in the book that is that is i mean there's so many funny things about that it's so makes me laugh so much because the the, he's so annoying. He just keeps going. This ain't nothing. I've been on the streets for. You think this is bad? This is. I've seen worse than this. I've lived in worse conditions than this. And he won't shut up, right? And then he's dead. And then it's just sort of. It's a really funny black humor bit. But again, in the book that does in the film that does not come across because they don't give anything the time to breathe. They try and fit loads in, but nothing has the time to breathe, so nothing actually works. It's just a series of confusing events essentially um but no sorry the the plane thing i was going to say is when he's on the plane the optometrist plane he he um billy suddenly has that flash forward of what's going to happen he sees the ski men the ski men that's the official term isn't it the ski men. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, he sees the ski rescue skiers uh, stood in the um, leaving party, doesn't he? So, and then he goes, the plane's going to crash, the plane's... But the whole point of Trafalmador is that he's, he's completely serene with it. He knows it's going to crash and he's fine mm. with it and it always does. And he's, there's nothing in the book where he suddenly gets terrified and says, you have to stop the plane because he knows what's going to happen. And he's just... So that was a really weird liberty they took there because it kind of changes the whole story, right? Yeah, I guess it yeah. takes out any dramatic, you know, pull you would have on screen because, like, the, in the book, it is like he's playing a role every time he enters a different scene in his life. It's like, well, now it's time to play this role. Now it's time to play that role. Whereas yeah. here, maybe he's actually trying to change well, things, but that's impossible. The other, yeah, a lot of basically all the problems I have with the film are where it's it's trying too hard to be a film in a way that the book can't. Like, there's a line I think where Vonnegut actually says like this story doesn't have characters but the film tries really hard to make them into characters so like tony lazaro is like you know complete like in the book he's this scrawny little nothing who's making all these completely empty threats yeah but the film makes him like a real tough guy like he could have yeah, out of the godfather yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly he doesn't even get injured in it it doesn't get you know no one roughs him up or anything which is which is another weird decision yeah Again, taking some of the jokes out of it, it's weird. Mm. Well, let's let's give everyone a giant headache and do a, a quick plot summary on this one. Pilgrim is unstuck in time. He passes in and out of moments of his life in a seemingly random fashion. One minute, he is a young optometrist marrying the plump daughter of his mentor. Another minute, he is trapped behind enemy lines in Belgium during World War II. Then he is on a soon-to-crash airplane flight in the 1970s. He is captured by the German army and eventually funneled down to a POW camp in Dresden. Another minute passes and he is trapped in a fifth dimensional alien zoo where he is expected to mate with a large bosomed starlet. Soon enough, he is in an underground meat locker as the allied forces firebomb Dresden to an absolute pulp. He is shot and assassinated in 1975 by a now elderly POW who did not like Billy much during the war. The next minute, he's watching his one friend in Dresden executed by the Germans for taking a dancing figurine out of the ashes of Dresden. And so it goes.
want to I want to get a little bit more just about the film before we really do the book. Um, I brought up some names. Sorry if you're hearing my click clacking. I'm in emergency iPad mode. So um, yeah, director. Okay, the director is George Roy Hill, who is a notable director. He did uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. So there's you know there's reason to assume that this film might have been more successful than it was. The world according to Garp. Oh, Slapshot. That's a fun one. So yeah, he's made he made lots of really good films. Mm. But um, yeah, this one is a little bit of a. I mean, again, you can tell there's like some thinking here. There's some art here, but it just it doesn't really gel together in the end. But uh, mm. it's it's not from having a lack of a, a decent hand on the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's just a terrible idea to try and make a film with this book because all the story and all the point of it is in is in the narration. Right. Yeah. It's, it's in it's it's in the Vonnegut's narration and the way he describes things and and the fact that you know he's, it's like he is explaining things to an alien or to someone who has no idea. Oh, this is wild! Are. I'm just I'm looking at the music and they were not using stock music. The music from this movie is actually played by uh, Glenn Gould, who's one of the major pianists of the the mid 20th century. So they got a very <laughs> class guy. To he's he's playing all Bach. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what that is wild. Which might be why it's so high in the in the um, you know, it's like now getting Yo Yo Ma to do your soundtrack. You put him up in yeah. the soundtrack, you know. <laughs> this is this is just the director's sort of excuse to hire someone he likes. I think. <laughs> yeah, well, he'd already made Butch Cassidy, so he had his blank check, right? <laughs> God, maybe that's why some of those uh, establishing shots are so long because they want to like let the piece play out because you know you you need to do it with classical, don't you? You can't just have. A couple of bars of it, you need to you need to let it breathe, right? But it's just just feels forced and strange. It really does. Well, here and, and we then... go. I opened up the IMDb mat to sort of join you in this, and here's something from the trivia. Um, and so it goes appears one hundred times in the novel. It's not uttered even once in the movie. Yeah, or yeah. or put a tweet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or um, they take out the epitaph. Everything is beautiful and nothing hurt. Yeah. Um, the Serenity Prayer is not in it. Yeah. Which is like a major theme. <laughs> I mean, this has always been on my list of the unfilmable books, even though there is a movie for it. Um, this uh, On the Road, I don't even think anyone's tried to make a movie for On the Road, uh, Kerak's yeah. book. Um, 1984 doesn't have a definitive film version. I mean, there's the one they made in 1984. Visually, it's cool, but still, it, you have to, I mean, when a third of that book is just somebody going on about you know the philosophy of the state it's hard to make a movie of it <laughs> mm, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> or you could just have them make it maybe they did on make a giant speech it's been a while I, i've read 1984 probably like eight times i've watched the movie once so <laughs> yeah i think i watched <laughs> chunks of the movie and i didn't feel that i needed to see anymore to be honest yeah yeah i watched like a possibly not official videotape of the film. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was like, yeah, okay, I think I prefer the book. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess dystopias are a little hard to to do. Until recently, now you can have, you know, the virtual sets and do you just, well, you still got to write a script, which people tend to forget to do sometimes. But mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you could take on something like, like Brave New World and make a better film than has been attempted. I think that one's just like TV movies in the past. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, you know, there's, there's such a huge sci-fi resurgence at the moment and a lot of budget 
thrown into those things, you know, massive Netflix and Amazon Prime sci-fi stuff that you could see it happening. You could see them setting up a world. And also it'd be maybe it'd be the case that you would do it as an ongoing series because then you can take the time to establish a universe, as it were, which which something like that would need. So then you can sort of get into go, okay, I see what this place is about. And that can take the place of, you know, what a narrative might do in in, in a novel. Instead of having to rush it through. I'm having a look at the actors in here, and despite the fact that you know his last movie is what Robert Redford and Paul Newman, there's not any particularly well-known folks in here. Okay, yeah, Michael Sachs is Billy Pilgrim. He's best known for Slaughterhouse Five. So <laughs> <laughs> the um, the chap playing Edgar Derby really reminded me of Cole Meany all the way through the film. Oh yeah, for sure. So um, and that's the other one where I was, maybe I. Yeah, none of these. He was the original oh, uh, Ajax man in 1970s television commercial. So that that's the kind of the kind of notoriety <laughs> we're finding here. Ah, <laughs> incredible. The original, though, to be fair, would a but, few um, familiar faces help in this film? The only one I do kind of recognize was the guy playing Lazaro because I think he plays essentially the same character in a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> Best known for his 1993 performance in Angels in America. Okay. Won a primetime Emmy award for something. So he he has a, he's, he certainly sounds more notable than everyone else is here. Oh, I've I just, ju- I just realized what I recognize him from, and it's actually quite embarrassing. Oh, yeah. Rachel's dad in Friends. <laughs> what? <laughs> is he? Yeah. No way. Why? Well, sure, why not? That up. <laughs> Oh my god, is it really? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Sorry, that's Mrs. Me Googling. This is me Googling. Oh, oh just in response to your <laughs> earlier statement. Shit. Uh, I, I'm back on the music a bit here. It was this wiki sentence. The prolonged rend- the prolonged rendition of the final move in a Boxworth Brandenburg Concerto accompanies the cinema montage as the main character first encounters the city of Dresden. So even Wiki's got to be, yes, it is prolonged. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's as much shade as a Wiki is allowed to throw. Yeah. <laughs> Factual shade. <laughs> oh, that's blown my mind that Rachel Green's dead. <laughs> But yeah, you you usually manage to dig up something a little more interesting than that for our actors. But I guess that's that's what you get what you get on this one, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I will say, um, I think Michael Sachs is too handsome to be Billy Pilgrim. Yeah, he can play play Goofy quite well. Like he had the right vibe in how he was acting, but he just didn't look like enough of a weed. He had too much of a jawline, and and later on as well when he's playing the middle aged. Billy Pilgrim, he, he doesn't have what I have in my head of that complete listlessness, like a man that's just going through the motions. He's a mess. He's just, you let anyone, anyone just walk over him. He goes to his job mm. day in, day out. He's not really, like his family are there and they exist, but he, he couldn't really give a shit either way. They're just, you know, they, they're just there, part of this almost matter yeah. of fact life he has because, you know, PTSD, you know, that's, yes. and that's something they, don't really pick up on in the film either. They don't really, uh, that's not a theme, I don't think. Well, one of the the biggest things, I guess we start moving into the book. In Mm. the book, a lot of things that the 
Tralfamadorians do and say directly mirrors things the Germans do and say when they take him prisoner. Yes. And we don't really see or hear much from them in the film at all. So <laughs> what can yes. you do? No, it's like wildly left field once we get to them in, in, in the movie. So it's like, what, mm. huh? Because the, the book, I think the book doesn't, within the first few pages, it pretty much lays out all the scenarios, yeah? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like we do in this podcast. It gives you the whole plot in the first page <laughs> and then just discusses it for the rest of the book. It's almost yeah. like... The, movie tries to biopic it more it's like we can't put the philosophy on screen properly so we'll mm. just kind of make this is like billy pilgrim's biopic which you know is that's the questionable uh genre of movie yeah <laughs> yes yes like yeah, i appreciate the failed experiment uh thing of the movie I, I still find the movie somewhat fascinating because of how they tried to do it but yeah you just you know a few minutes ago you just named like eight major lines that simply aren't in the movie it's like what i, I guess the book hadn't firmly entrenched itself in the in the counterculture yet i don't know <laughs> this wasn't that long after the book right yeah the book was 66 i think so yeah it's only six years old so i assume it wasn't like taught in schools or anything yet and in fact being oh, an anti-war book released during vietnam i think it was probably pretty buried sorry 69 it was very close to oh um, wow to the movie so yeah <laughs> yeah so they wouldn't have thought we had they, they wouldn't have thought we have to put these lines in the movie yet, which now if you were to do this, you'd have, I mean, again, you'd be crazy not to, you know? Yes. But um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that, that whole thing of the, uh, the main, because I think the whole point of, of, of the trauma and the PTSD is that it's, the, <laughs> I think there's only a hint of doubt for me that, that the whole thing isn't, just in his head hmm. it's almost it's almost not a sci-fi novel i think right because it's it's you know that everything as you say like there's there's lots of links so they say there's a part in the book where he the uh, where Vonnegut describes the uh markings on the trains as being orange and black um the passenger trains the prisoner trains so that the bombers won't target them to say this mm. is a prisoner train don't bomb it right and then in the next chapter he is at his daughter's wedding and the um the gazebo outside is striped orange and black and that's when he has to go he has a dizzy spell and he has to go upstairs and he and he, and he becomes unstuck in time right that's clearly a traumatic response a trigger right and it's and it's and it's discussing that kind of thing and there's other bits um that are like that but it's just to me that that says that it's there's there's very little room it doesn't completely explicitly say this is definitely not happening to him mm. um but things like that and the thing like the fact that it's like billy is this very average guy right it's all about there's lots of themes in there about the average guy and people talk about the average guy and no characters right um that i think links into the fact that the aliens he meets have has the stupidest fucking name like it's such a rubbish name right and that's definitely on purpose because it's come from his imagination and that's right. as that's as good as his imagination can muster the trafalmadorian you know it's just a mess of you know syllables isn't it it's nothing it's like <laughs> and then Douglas he adams them. would have approved yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he imagines them as little uh 
like plunges, doesn't he, with one hand and an eye? It's like a really sort of basic idea, right? And I think that's, I did see a opinion, real, a real up. English teacher take on the Trafamadorians, which yeah. is that they're shaped like plungers because they are unclogging his memories for him, mm-hmm. the way a plunger unclogs a toilet. <laughs> I'm, I'm recently <laughs> sure Vonnegut wasn't thinking about that, but hey, that's... you know, subconsciously. <laughs> But yeah, with saying it's all in his head, I, I mean, I don't know. My, my brain is uh, notoriously wired a little differently, but I have like major points in my life where it was a, just a seared, burned memory that I can kind of return to, you know, at any point in time. Uh, yeah. My six my six year old, you know, birthday party uh, shortly before leaving Japan the first time. I just have about a minute of rolling down on my bicycle down a dark street that's just like permanently you know seared in a memory and i kind of return to that anytime you know <laughs> well i think the mm. real point is it doesn't matter if it's real because if he is time traveling or if he's not both are just a coping mechanism to help him deal with the realities of what he went yeah. through yeah so it's ultimately like i don't think we're supposed to be too concerned with whether it's real it's about what he takes from it. Yeah, the coping mechanism. And I think the book itself is a coping mechanism for Vonnegut. Well, he, yeah, he's, <clears throat> there's a whole chapter from his point of view about yeah. how hard it was to write this book and how he had to yeah. do it. In this. And but he tells it really off as happened, well. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, he I tried to make the book interesting, but and, and I, I make it seem bleak and pointless in the book, but it was even more bleak and pointless in my actual experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which peppers the humor through it. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, which is just astonishing the way he can go from like the way you can go from making you absolutely piss yourself one second and the next page, you're just, you're ashen, you know? Um, there's a bit where you see, I, I took some, I took some quotes, but I took too many and now I d- don't know where they are because <laughs> I didn't <laughs> order them properly. Um, but there's a bit about um, where he talks about, uh, he, he completely makes up this bit about um, a photographer. So it's two years after the invention of the daguerreotype, the first mm. photography and the guy's assistant, whose name's escaping me right now, um, he, he claims that this guy's assistant um, was arrested two years later after the invention of the daguerreotype for trying to sell a picture of a, a woman uh, right with a pony, yeah. with a pony in front of two Doric columns <laughs> and, a, and a and a plant pot. Right, <laughs> and he just presents it as fact, but it's it's so mischievous because he doesn't. There's no there's no like. Um, hint until slightly later on um that it's not that it's not it's not true (laughs) it's just so good and like there's a bit i'm trying to find it i'm sorry um that was it so yeah totally presents it as fact and then he 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 gets just silly enough to let you know that this is this isn't true because it almost sounds feasible you're like oh of course that'd be what happened as soon as people could make photographs they start trying to make dirty things of it right they talk about stranger in fiction when i was doing my student teaching uh one of i had a few people i teachers i was working under one of them was the cool teacher right Mm. and he didn't seem to like me that much and kind of like was like i guess it's kind of like you know suggestion i couldn't pass and i was like god what did i do the other teachers seemed to like me pretty well two years later i turn on the news 
the guy's been arrested, has been fired, and is going to jail for trying to diddle the girls' basketball team. So I was like, okay, I guess, yeah, now the, the wheel of karma is turned. <laughs> I'm yeah. pretty glad that guy didn't like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, oh, okay. That means I must be okay, right? Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> yeah, that was the same teacher I referred to before that spent an entire day uh, playing Dark Side of the Moon with the Wizard of Oz. Um, subtext doesn't go together. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it like six times now. It does not work unless you're really, really, really high, which maybe he was. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I get this now. <laughs> um, I found that um, I found that bit. So yeah, Andre Lefebvre, Lefebvre was his assistant, but he wasn't. No such person existed as a, as the okay. assistant to, to him at all. And then it says, <laughs> so he gets arrested. Apparently, it says Lefebvre argued that the picture was fine art and that his intention was to make Greek mythology come alive. He said the columns and the potted plant, uh, potted palm proved that. <laughs> <laughs> when asked which myth he meant to represent, the fervor replied that there were thousands of myths like that, with a woman immortal and the pony a god. He was sentenced to six months in prison. He died there of pneumonia. So it goes. He just adds just enough stupidity on the end to let you know he's. he's, I've he's no, I just assumed that was all fact. <laughs> and 40 years later, they made Caligula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bit he entirely fabricates just for the sake of it, just to be cheeky. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. Well, again, the book is entirely fabricated. It's a work of fiction, except for the last chapter where he says, "No, it was here's what's really happened, and it was kind of dull. I needed to spice it up a bit." Well, the, uh, the one or two, the one or two moments where Vonica appears during the narrative, I've always assumed they were somewhat true. Because it's only like one or only one, no, once or twice, he he's like, you know, there'll be a character says something, he's like, that was me, I was there. Yes. So I I assume those were happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, and I think that's him saying, this happened around me. I think he's saying, you know, most of the trains and and all the sort of key bits in Dresden, yeah, 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 were things he experienced because they're too traumatic and painful. He he's, he's got this. He's dis. I mean, he's you know distancing himself from from it from the events by being like whenever you hear about him as himself in the book, he's a few feet away from Billy. So in the mm. in the in the um, train cart when it opens and they see Dresden, he says it's like Oz, mm. right? And it's the second city. And he said that was my voice. It was he's a few steps behind him basically. So he's always yeah. You know, that's that distancing to, to protect himself while he's writing about this thing because, you know, as you see at the end, he, he was part of the body cleanup crew and he had to take, drag bodies out from underneath the bombs, you know, the bombing. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not layers, can... <laughs> layers and layers and layers because there's, he's, see, it's not Kurt Vonnegut's story, it's Billy's Pilgrim story. And then Billy's not seeing it directly, he's seeing it through time travel and through. Yeah. This layers yeah. of metaphor. It's like a like a basilisk or something. You can't look directly at it. You have yes. to look at it through a mirror, through another mirror. Yeah. To lessen the effect. Yeah. And I yeah, think that yeah. I think that makes it more impactful than if it was just a dry description of horrible things that happened. Definitely. Because it helps you it humanizes it in a way that it wouldn't if it was just like, I went to Dresden and here's what happened and it was terrible for hundred pages. Yeah. Absolutely, and and that, like we say, that he weaves it in perfectly. That idea of um, 
like trauma triggers and things like that, because there is, oh, I can't remember whose breath is described as smelling like roses and mustard gas, but it's quite early on. I think it's, it's, so it's either Billy or Monica himself when they drink. Yeah. And then he, re- he refers to it right at the end when he's talking about the smell coming out of the bunkers mm. when they take the bodies out and they're like, ah, yeah. okay. Okay, that's why you, that's why that scent is so uh, familiar to, you know. So there's a lot of that throughout it, actually. You see it a oh. lot of, and, yeah, and like all the themes where you, things, small icons turn up throughout different passages of time that you see, whether they're the photograph or little little markings or say the orange and black and all those sorts of things, they, they pop up everywhere. <laughs> me i was just looking up so i make sure i got it right my favorite weird factoid about about vonnegut um and then makes you wonder if the smell thing had to do with that uh i'll read this is from a reddit but i remember hearing the fact like a very long time ago uh kurt vonnegut's high school nickname was snarf because his classmates noticed him continually sniffing his armpits so in his graduating (laughs) class of 1940 he is listed as kurt Snarfield Vonnegut Jr. <laughs> that being a, a real fact. <laughs> that's Excellent. incredible. But that, that's of- a very Billy Pilgrim thing, right? You know, just there some of the weirdness of Billy Pilgrim would come straight from Vonnegut, right? Oh yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. You don't he's write very a much book an like outsider this if you're Mr. Normal. Yeah, yeah, he's very much an outsider, isn't he? And that's he feels that. And yeah, that comes out through Pilgrim as well. Um the other thing, unless I misremember, and I, d- I did watch the film just today, but they do they mention Kilgore Trout at all? I don't think so. I think he, <clears throat> like you see a copy of a book because he is in hospital next to the guy who reads books. So I th- right. think I think there was like a little cameo. He's Rose reading Water. a Kilgore Trout book, but yeah. Rose yeah. Water, yeah, that's the one. Which again, which is, is kind of a major part of it. Isn't well, it? also, then, yeah, that's another way that it tells you that this is probably all in Billy's head is that he read all of it in Kilgore Trout books. Yeah, there's a there's a book he he reads in the in the um, in the dirty shop um, <laughs> that is it's like oh I've read this one before and it exactly describes the situation he is in on Trafalgar when he's in the in the dome with everyone in the zoo with uh i've forgotten the name the the montana wildback thank you yeah, yeah. montana wildback <laughs> Wild Wild yeah, yeah. yes she's a fantastic montana wildback is one of her moves yeah <laughs> <laughs> um you know it's exactly that isn't it i also and mm. also don't think um kurt when i got liked sci-fi that much even though he wrote it because like the character of of um 
of Kilgore Trout, which I looked at today is is based on sort of a friend and rival he had who was also writing sci-fi at the time, who was called because his last name was a a fish name. I forgot. Okay. <laughs> My brain but, is absolutely. But Kilgore Trout himself shows up in Mother Night, and he's completely reprehensible, and everyone hates him, and he, he can't sell yeah. his books. Like like Billy yeah. Pilgrim's like the only guy, and then the guy in Mother Night, they're like the only people. Campbell are the only people reading his books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, he's like, and he's in um, Breakfast of Champions as well, which is, is another one of his that I've read. And again, he's just he's just awful, and no one can highly unsuccessful. Books. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was a. Um, it was essentially, yeah, here we go. I'm just looking up again, sorry. It was like baffled um, someone read his books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, that's right. So the real guy's name is uh, Theodore Sturgeon. Okay. <laughs> and, he, and he found it so funny, his name. He's got, he's got, his last name is a fish that he just he just basically, he never said until after he died, admitted that that was that was who it was. It was this guy called Theodore Sturgeon. He was also writing sci-fi at the same time as he started writing it. And um, he just he just took the piss out of him via Kilgore Trout, this really horrible man. He got like <laughs> messing around with children on paper rounds and being being awful to them. Um, it, <laughs> he's just this bit. Um, yeah. So he, he um, admitted it afterwards. And he stated in 1987 interview, he said, yeah, it said so in his obituary in the New York Times. I was delighted that it said in the middle of it that he was the inspiration for the Kurt Vonnegut character of Kilgore Trout. <laughs> just delighted that he got that into his obituary. I, I think Vonnegut's hat trick was, um, you know, say Stephen King suddenly decides to write a romance or something. People are like, what? Oh, that's that's a wild shift to genre. Where Kurt Vonnegut, well-known sci-fi writer, but he kind of finessed it where like slaughterhouse five it's like mm. is this sci-fi i'm not quite sure and then you know by the 70s you're getting books that clearly are not sci-fi they're just kind of like weird social satire that feels like sci-fi mm. yes yeah yeah he, he definitely took his he, i think he saw something wrong with the way sci-fi was going and he wanted to put his spin on it which he did beautifully of course that's oh yeah the masterpieces he's written but that, i think that's why kilgore trout is so rubbish he writes such terrible rubbish all the time and there's, there's a quote in here about um, he, sa- he said Kilgore Trout was more or less invented by a friend of mine Knox Berger which is another insane name but who was my editor in the early days he did not suggest that I do this but he said you know the problem with science fiction it's much more fun to hear someone tell the story of the book than to read the story itself said, <laughs> and it's true if you, paraphrase a, if you paraphrase a science fiction story it comes out as a very elegant joke and it's over in a minute or so it's a tedious business to read all the surrounding material. So I started summarizing them. And I suppose I've now summarized 50 novels I'll never have to write and spared people the reading of them. <laughs> I mean, That's basically that perfectly, why Trout's there. <laughs> that perfectly explains why I haven't read much Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got the story. You don't need the stuff around it. Yeah, yeah. And um, even, what, what was it? Because... Um, a few years ago, I, I read Dune, and Luke was like, "Yeah, yeah I've only read the first one. I've never really gotten into the other uh, Herbert novels." Like, ah, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just knock through them, and yeah, about fifty pages into Children and Dune, or whatever the second one is. I was like, "Yeah, pretty, I'm pretty much finished." <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so now, in a few years, I'll probably go back and read the first one again. <laughs> yeah, I've read the first one like three or four times in my life, and every single time, I'd be like, "Well, I'll read the sequels." 
Now nah, just read the synopsis on Wikipedia. <laughs> See, I thought yeah. it was whack when you told me that, and it's like, oh, that seems to be exactly what I'm doing, even though I have the complete series on well, the complete Frank Herbert series on my iPad. Yeah. I didn't I didn't get the uh the, the later ones by his son and whoever else. <laughs> so like, something... not... mm, go ahead. I was I was gonna go like take us way different tangent now. So that's fine. Um yeah, this this book predates the term PTSD. Right, but um, it describes it. It describes it very well. Um, well when so he yeah. wrote it, when he wrote it, people were coming back from Vietnam, you know, clearly with it and not being mm-hmm. treated well by, you know, they're not getting a uh, a hero's welcome. So, you know, yes. kind of doubling down because, and some of them probably were scumbags, but a lot of them were not. You know. Oh yeah. So yeah, I think it's very yeah. And I have that. I have that particular quote to hand this time. Um, this I thought was amazing. Like in, to describe without having the word, without having the terminology for PTSD or trauma to describe it, because um, this is uh, some time later when the when the singing, when the, the that quartet are singing the Febs, mm. the Four Eyed yep. Bastards. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, and and it, for some reason it starts to upset him. And he doesn't know why. He's like, why am I so upset by this? I don't have an, an old gang or whatever. What is this? Um, and the quote is, uh, everyone's saying, you all right? Yeah, really, I'm okay. You look so awful. Really, I'm okay. And he was too, except that he could find no explanation for why the song had affected him so grotesquely. He had supposed for years that he had no secrets for himself. Here was proof that he had a great big secret somewhere inside and he could not imagine what it was. That's yep. that's perfect. That is a perfect description of of latent trauma, isn't it? It's incredible. I'm, I'm looking for the the polar opposite here. I think. Um, oh, that's a different book. I, th- I think it's a Flannery O'Connor story. I, d- I just looked up the wrong title, but it's the one where basically someone has um, been the 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 city's hero. He saved a few lives. He's in the hospital now, and they start talking to him before the press is going to come interview him, and they realize that he's a reprehensible asshole so the uh, dark ending of the book is someone just kind of you know in, in twilight zone fashion kind of nudges him out of the window so he just dies and stays a hero <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah, yeah it's like okay everyone thinks he's a hero now let's not let them find that find out the truth you know <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. well yes um that's the sort of thing that would happen in a vonnegut book but vonnegut is very much against the idea of heroes i think yeah. There's the whole right. section yeah. at the start where his friend's wife is convinced that that's what he wants to write is a book about what big damn heroes they were. Yeah, yeah. and she's, and she's Maria, furious about it. And I'm yes, saying Maria I think it's Flannery O'Connor, but now I'm also thinking, is that a, from the Monkey House book? And Because I would have read all that stuff at the same time. It might be Vonning himself who, who had that particular thought. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I, might, I failed in my little research here, so... <laughs> <laughs> if I got that long, but the, 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 but the point was the, uh, you know, the core of the story, right. That, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking what kind of person is Billy Pilgrim? Is he, is he like, if you meet Billy Pilgrim, what is your take on this dude? You know, <laughs> I get the impression you're not able to have a take on Billy Pilgrim. He's one of those guys who just exists. Yeah. He's also we here had, sort of thing. There's a friend of mine growing up. I'm pretty sure no one from this friendship group listens to his podcast. Uh, but the running joke was just like we would be describing a night out and we'd list the people who were there and we'd always forget he was one of them because he's just 
oh yeah, I guess he was also there. And he's just like, he, he didn't really have a sense of humor or a personality or would do anything. He just, he was there too. <laughs> just a participant. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you wouldn't dislike Billy Pilgrim. He'd just be there. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Because it does, you, apart from like one or two people in the war when he was being a hindrance, you don't get the impression that the characters dislike him or that they no. like him or that they notice him. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, anything that happens to him is uh, a reflection of the personality of the person inflicting it on him. Mm. So the uh, oh, the kid the kid in the in the trenches with, when they're behind enemy lines, my, my brain, my memory's dying. Weary, is that weary? There. Rolling weary, thank you, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he, you know, he's got a weird thing. Where he's trying to keep him alive, but he's also just, infuriated by him and wants to he's only bring he's only dragging him along so he can like scare him and, and show him all his weapons yeah. and and say I'll, I'll stab you at some point and you know and and and, and indeed he goes to beat the shit out of him at one point you know he's but billy's just a completely passive factor in that so it's nothing to do with who billy is because he is almost like the perfect nobody because all this person's doing is is exercising his demons on this training dummy right it's mm. he's, he's nothing in that interaction he's just the other thing to interact at <laughs> almost even down to his wife who does adore him like she yeah. doesn't necessarily adore him for anything that he is just because yeah. he's willing to marry her that's true yeah she's saying i i thought nobody would ever marry me so she's just she's the joy she's getting is is her insecurities being um, mm. Sated because you thought I thought I would never get married. So that again, that's all about her. Nothing to do with him. Again, he is just that, like a canvas, right, on which people put their insecurities and demons. To briefly go so, back to the film, another failing there is that his wife was perfectly pretty and nice. Yeah, she was say, unmarriable. I was going to say you can't you can't really put her on film because an important part of the book for her in particular is that you make what she looks like right yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely that's like that's you have you, you, with your mind you have to make her some not completely hideous but somewhat weirdly unappealing that and that's mm -hmm. different for everyone right <laughs> yeah <laughs> they didn't have that problem with montana wild hack did they Ex extremely 70s nudity in this thing. yeah <laughs> it's unbelievable well, and also supposed to be quite shocking around. to see um a naked child in a film that was weird so it's where he's like um the story when he his dad throws him in sink oh, swimming yeah. in the pool right and it's like and that's one of his first traumas because he nearly drowns he's like this is how i learned it's like did he need to have his bare ass out was that <laughs> is that necessary well, stick it, some it, trunks on it, the lad it might have just been that that wasn't weird in the 70s because i'm thinking like, yes well yeah yeah I think like, you go back to old films like that. Kids do just sort of frolic in the nude, so. right? <laughs> it, right, and that is—I was just like, oh yeah, no, we don't do that anymore, do we? Yeah, Look at that. Stop. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, oh, recently, funny, the, um, recently the baby on the Nevermind album tried to sue his parents. <laughs> or yes. no, I think he tried to sue um, Nirvana, but the court sort of decided, well, no, it's your parents who screwed you, not the band. And also there were like multiple stories of him like 
chatting away about how cool it was and impressing people with it like at various parties and things like the <laughs> old history of going yeah it was me and da 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 and, and yeah suddenly thought hey I'm not cool with get this few, now get a few bucks here although I, they, they actually held back a little bit because in the book they just uh, in the in the space dome they just run around naked all the time mm. yes that's <laughs> true yeah yeah so I was like oh they're they're censoring it and then and then they get to the um, you know then they're like, oh no, they're not really censoring. I guess I guess you can only do so much and keep your rating. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. It was a weird, like again, they put tried to sort of inject the humor in there, didn't they? Bringing down the night night canvas, the night curtain for the yeah, the night canopy, night canopy. Thank you. That's it. Um, again, which isn't explained, but in the book, it's because there's only one hour in every sixty or so that's nighttime on Trafalgar and. So they bring down this artificial night. He just says night canopy. I suppose it doesn't really need explaining, but it's, it's another one of those weird things that just turns up out of nowhere. <laughs> I always get that. When I watch a film and I've read the book, I always find myself asking, yeah, but how does someone who hasn't read the book know what's going on? Mm. I guess I think a good one. Never... Yeah. I think but a good I... adaptation, you don't need to have read it. I always watch it with someone who hasn't read the book and they apparently are fine. I watched so, um, Submarine, the Richard Ayoade's oh, film, yeah, yeah. and before I read it and then I read the book and and that was a perfect adaptation. You know, there's okay. extra stuff in the book, but it was more like cut content. Do you mm. know what I mean? Like rather than, um, and you didn't feel like you missed out on the sense of what the character was. And I felt the character Oliver Tate was the same in the book as is in the film. Like it gets it across perfectly and you don't yeah. really miss anything. That, that I think that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just never quite sure if a book, a film is doing that or if I just, because I can never experience it as someone who hasn't read the book. Mm, yeah. So I'll never sure. know. Like we don't have the fourth person order. on this podcast who hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's yeah, yeah. Just in reverse order on purpose. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what would be the way to train it? If you were now on a, you know, one of the streaming services and had some ridiculous budget to try and work with Slaughterhouse Five, how would you go about making it work? None of us being people that actually make movies, but <laughs> I guess I would give the whole film sort of a a montagey, dreamlike feel. I'm trying to think of an example of something that does that. Um, mm. I don't think it would be a very good film necessarily. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I think it can be filmed, but I don't think it, it just doesn't fit what you want from the structure of a film. You lose you know, so much deliberately not having his, his writing. You lose so much not having his narration and his descriptions of things. Cause those are just uniquely how he sees it. And that's not mm. something you can, you can put onto screen those without are, having those a opinions. load of narration, which would just just read the book at that point. Yeah, yeah again, yeah. wanting it so clearly in the book and so clearly left out of the movie. So <laughs> right, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think you can without just changing how you're going to approach it entirely. I think that I think probably the mistake they made was to try and tell all the story in the first place i think maybe they should have been taken more liberties with it than they did instead of just trying to hit all the they were just trying to hit all the beats of what happened even yes. if you don't have much of a explanation as to why those things are there and how and you know or, or, or what 
that what's trying to be said. So it is just a mad mess for most of it. Um, I, guess, I think that's why it doesn't work. Ultimately, I guess you shouldn't make a film of it because it is very personal. Even though Billy Pilgrim is fictional and everything, it's clearly this is Vonnegut talking to the audience through this book, mm. like almost one-on-one in a way. So to make a film version that Vonnegut's not involved with, I mean, I, I don't know how involved he was in this film, but obviously he wouldn't be involved now. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, I'd rather see a director tell, you know, their own personal story. I don't necessarily yeah. think the book lends itself to being remade. Here's something weird about the movie. I watched it a couple nights ago, and I don't know if I've seen it before or not. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've read the book four or five times. I've seen images from the movie for sure, like screenshots. Mm. But I'm like, have I? I, I must have watched it at some point. But I, I really do not know if I've watched this before. <laughs> Perfect. That's funny. That's yeah. funny. It, it has a feeling of, like... Um, like a Jodorowsky sort of thing. It is that sort of mm. 70s surrealness, isn't it? It is yeah. lots of batty ideas and, and slightly weirdly framed shots. And even the way it cuts between things feels a bit like a Jodorowsky. Like it, it, it's like, I don't know. Well, Topo, about naked it. kids. <laughs> yeah, see, there, there's the themes, right? <laughs> there's, there's some weird, it shares some weird DNA like that. And, <laughs> You know, like kind of the tracking shots that are a little bit too close, like they stick mm. the wrong lens on and they're sort of um, rushing to catch up with whatever they're filming, you know, like to get that sense of speed. It's the stuff like that. There's loads of weird little things like that in it that make me think of those. And, and you know, and, you know, loads of non sequiturs that I explained. <laughs> that's, that's where it's hard for me to even say, like, if this movie, like, holds up today or not. To me, it seems like you went to a really good play and they gave you, like, a, a relatively nice slick program and the movie is the program they gave you you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah it, it 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 gets a bit better in the final half i think a little it bit in does place. but i also i don't think dresden in this film hit me no because the bit the book hit me the book was a punch in the gut mm. and perhaps because you don't like, if you added up all the words that are explicitly about Dresden in this book, it's like a page of A4. Yeah. Um, but the, you know the entire rest of the story is, mm. even when it's not about it, it is about it. Well, it's that personal thing, like you said, because, mm. you you know, he, he sets it, he's, Vonnegut sets out and says, I, I was there. So you know he was there. So when he pops mm. up in, as himself in, in little bits... So he can't tell you directly. He's going to make lots of jokes, but you can't make yeah. jokes about a horrible firebombing. So he's going about it as like, you know, uh, around the block as he can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's probably why it hits home the same, because, you know, when Billy's in that bunker, that's not made up. Yeah. And you're thinking, fuck. <laughs> oh. I think that's basically it, you know. Whereas with the film, you, you're looking at it like you might hear about war in the news. You think oh, that's terrible, and you you don't feel great about it. But you're not you're not focusing on a single person experiencing mm. that event, you know. I, I think it's you know you read something super populist like the aforementioned Stephen King books, or, or say Harry Potter books. You haven't seen the movies, and you have to 
construct, you know, your visual language in your own head, right? And just just to yeah. be able to get through it, right? I mean, that's a normal thing. And but Slaughterhouse Five, it kind of requires. It's like you have to create the this memory space, just like Billy Pilgrim's in, you know. So mm. Slaughterhouse Five is absolutely going to read different for everybody. Where Harry Potter is going to be the same story for pretty much everyone who reads it. But this yes. book, this it's like this it's like almost like a choose your own adventure book in the details, you know. <laughs> But that's it. It's a choose your own adventure book in a world that doesn't have free will. Yeah. <laughs> you, you could put at the end of every time section, like go to page, whatever. Go to the next page. <laughs> that would be a good reprinting of Slaughterhouse 5 or someone yes. should. Yeah, someone I like that. Steal that idea. <laughs> I like that a lot. This is kind of an interactive book in a way in that like really, you know, what you are making, like it's like your own personal biases color, like what's happening mm -hmm. in this book, how horrible the firebombing is, depends entirely on how horrible you're making it, you know? Right. Yeah. What, what I like about is what this book and all his books really also is that he is not above toilet humor or any funny little dirty joke, which, which I think. It's funny in itself to just pepper it with that, but it's also important to put them in in a way because it shows you that everything that's happened to him, it, there's, there's a positivity in there and that it hasn't broken his spirit mm. to the extent that he's no longer a, a human being. Do you know what I mean? He's not completely broken by the experience. He's managed to re retain that sort of humanity. I know it's a slightly, uh, <laughs> slightly grand way of looking at it, but like mm. the fact that he can still be this funny yeah is is kind of uh warming right well the character he ends up kind of on himself i get from this reminds me of um maud from harold and maud where she's so funny and happy and this bright light and then you learn at the end it's because she's so incredibly sad at the center and like this book is very funny and wacky and fun because it's all built around this incredibly depressing center that it doesn't want to approach. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I guess on the movie, my final thing is if you are into the book, it's, it is curious, basically just to see because you've made such a vivid take of your own, having read mm. the book, hopefully, then you just see someone else's take and none of us really clicked with it that much, but it's fascinating to see someone's take on it. Yeah. Yeah, like, I actually yeah thought it was worth watching and enjoyed watching it in terms of like, you know, it's a seven. What was it seventy two? It's like fifty yeah. years old. The film itself, which is which is wild in itself to think about. Oh right? yeah, because we've done this as the hundredth anniversary of the book of Vonnegut. It's the fiftieth anniversary of the film. Fiftieth anniversary okay. of the film, which yeah. is yeah. which is crazy enough on itself, right? To think about. So it it is fascinating to watch all the way through like even just as an artifact right and, and a, an attempt to make sense of a, a, a masterpiece mm -hmm.
do we have any final thoughts you want to throw on the book or the movie uh i'm, I'm basically just bringing that up because i very prosaically i have to wash the dishes and then do another podcast so <laughs> <laughs> i guess just not really on the book or the film but i just want to get out of my system because that's what this book did for me was i very much grew up in the uk being taught in world war ii the germans were baddies and we were goodies yeah and they did this horrible thing called the blitz and then we went over and liberated europe and i we i guess growing up you did hear about hiroshima and nagasaki always with the oh it shortened the war and saved millions of american lives addendum and then yeah all in this space of like two months where i read a I think I lent it to you, Matt, and it was too depressing to read because you were in hospital. <laughs> that huge book about yes. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes. I visited both cities and read this, and it was just like, yeah, sure. I guess if you literally just look at the leaders of the two countries, we were probably on the right side and should have won. But like, there's no good guys in a war, especially when you start bombing civilians. The, the secondary... The, oh, finish your point. The, the idea that... like. Britain is so great because it resisted the Blitz, but that we thought we could do the same things to Germany and Germany it would break their spirits. It's just ridiculous arrogance. Yeah. And like that line of thinking has stuck with Britain for the past, you know, 70 years. And we still think we're fighting World War Two and the best country on earth as we just, you know, plummet. <laughs> Not, not like the Deep South, where they're still fighting the Civil War. But uh, I was going to say the, the other reason I wasn't reading in the hospital is because then I would have been an American in a Japanese hospital reading that book, <laughs> which would have looked a little bit weird. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember not, yeah. when I was in the museum in Nagasaki, a bus full of Jap- uh, American tourists came in and talked really loudly through the whole museum. And I wanted to just scream at them, guys, if there's one place to not be an American, it's here. <laughs> Like, tone oh, it down, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, just these boomers just swanning around loudly chatting oh. about lunch. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. Oh. Well, Matt, Maddie, and I pulled that in the, the onsen yesterday. We were sitting there, you know, washing yourself before you get on the bath. And and apparently we were talking way too loud. And someone told us that. <laughs> I went. I got told off with Matty when we were playing Monster Hunter on a bus and talking too loud. <laughs> I think that's just Matty. <laughs> uh, winding into the gate, I guess, then. So uh, shall, we, shall we tell everyone where they're at? Yeah, Gary, where can, uh, where can people find you these days? Uh, I mean, how long is Twitter going to last? But if you want to find me on there, it's at Gary Duton, G-A-R-Y-D-O-O-T-O-N. Uh, it's not my real name, but don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> that's where I do most of most of my tweeting. Um, I've got a podcast called Making Games is Fun, which, you know, I think there's some sci-fi and video game fan crossover, isn't there? Indeed, yes, um, it is. Which is one of, one of two, one of two. Uh, and I interview game developers and people interested in games in one way or another or whose lives are affected, shall we say, by computer games <laughs> um, about whatever we want to chat about. And uh, that is everything you need to know about me. Yeah, you'll Ooh. find us on Twitter at Elon Musk. Um. <laughs> <laughs> 
I did just see the news. Oh, go ahead. I was going to do our real plugs, but you can chat oh, about Elon Musk say, if you want. Yeah, Never interrupt that. No, I just woke up this morning and saw that uh, Kat, Kathy Griffin had been kicked off Twitter for impersonating Elon Musk, as many yeah. people are doing this Loads of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Twitter at MLSFSPod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Make sure you like and subscribe, blah, blah, blah. If you want to help support the podcast, keep it on mind. You can go to patreon.com slash podcastiopodcastius. There you'll find links to the other podcasts we make, like Matt's Twilight Zone podcast, Time Enough. Uh, this film reminded me of Twilight Zone in that Twilight Zone re- keeps reminding me that every single person you see on screen in the 60s fought in World War II. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just yeah, like, oh, yeah. This, you, they could just treat that as just a thing that everyone knew about because they all did it. <clears throat> Our greatest generation. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's also gaming stuff on our podcast network. You can check out Luke Loves Pokemon, podcast about pokemons check out monster mash podcast about monster hunter or the game game show a game show about games trying to capture that british panel show energy matt how do you describe this podcast uh four british guys screaming insults at each other there you go (laughs) (laughs) maybe you'll listen to this hundred years in the future we're all dead but so it goes so it goes Yes. Yeah.